Hi, everyone. You're listening to Beyond the Benchmark, the EFG podcast. My name is Mo Safsa. I'm the Global Chief Investment Officer for EFG. Today, we uh, play a second uh, presentation from our investment summit that took place on the 9th and 10th of January 2023. Uh, and this time around, we have Conson uh, Locke, or Professor Conson Locke, from the London School of Economics, who gave a very interesting presentation about making your voice heard. So let's listen into the uh, uh, speech from Conson. Genuinely very delighted to welcome back to the conference this year, Conson Locke, who is a lecturer in management at the London School of Economics. Uh, some of you may remember Constance spoke at our conference a few years ago and is uh, a, a really interesting speaker who talks about the way that we communicate with each other. She's just written a book called Making Your Voice Heard, which I'm sure she'll talk more about. Uh, she has uh, you know, a long and distinguished career in sort of psychology, uh, management, leadership, and um, uh, yeah, with a BA from Harvard and a PhD from Berkeley. She's also very smart and or very Berkeley. well qualified academically. <laughs> or Berkeley. Well, excuse me. <laughs> Berkeley Square. <laughs> I, I can't get used to that. I can't get used to calling Lester, it Berkeley. Lester. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, without further ado, I'll hand over to Constance. Thank you. Oh, sorry, one more thing. We will be using Slido again for questions. So if you have any questions, please submit them on Slido or I will um, also allow the opportunity to ask questions from the floor later on. Thank you. So my, my husband is British, and as you can probably tell, I'm not. Um, and he was watching a video of some, some American cooking video, and they couldn't say Worcestershire sauce. And he was just laughing because he's from Worcestershire. <laughs> um, so yes, as you can probably tell, I am not from around here, but I have lived in the UK since 2008 and I have the passport to show it. How many of you were here in 2020 when I was here? Raise your hand. Okay, cool. Um, well, nice to see you again. There will be some familiar material in this presentation, but um, honestly, I couldn't remember what I talked about in 2020 until I looked it up, so hopefully you don't remember either. Um, so for those of you who haven't met me, if you look at the first four letters of my first name, it tells you which state in the United States I was born in, which is what? Connecticut, yes, exactly. Um, so my parents immigrated from China, well, my dad from China, my mother from the Philippines, and they settled in Connecticut, and I was their first child, and they thought, let's commemorate this occasion. And so my grandfather created a name, a Chinese name based on the Chinese name of Connecticut. And the Chinese name of Connecticut is Kangzhou, so he took the Kang, and he added Sun, which is the um, suffix that every, all the kids in my generation had, um, which is kind of a traditional thing. And so my Chinese name is Kang Sun, but my mother, instead of spelling it the way it sounds, she spelled it C-O-N-N -N to make it clear there is this connection to Connecticut. So um, I am now in my 50s, and I have never seen anyone else with this name. There was, there was a typhoon in Hong Kong several years ago named Consin, but it didn't have two N's. It was C-O-N-S-O-N. -S -S so I can pretty safely say nobody else in the world has my name. 
um, which is kind of nice. But I, I gave my daughters normal names, so they'll, they'll have to struggle with you know, other people having the same name. So I've been at the LSE since 2008. Before that, I spent 10 years, well, before that, I was actually at Berkeley doing my PhD. And before that, I spent 10 years in Hong Kong working in management consulting. So I spent five years at Monitor Company as a consultant, five years with the Boston Consulting Group as their regional training and development manager. And that's how I realized that I enjoy teaching adults. And that's how I ended up going into academia. After which I realized actually being a successful academic is more about the research than the teaching, but you know. Um, I've managed to do a little bit of both, but I'm mostly doing the teaching now. So the book that I wrote that came out last year is called Making Your Voice Heard. And the thing that really interested me about it, so the reason I enjoyed writing the book is because what I studied in my PhD was power and influence, which we often think of power and influence as leadership. You know, it's under the larger, larger umbrella of leadership. But when we think of leaders, we often think of leaders as influencing downward, you know, influencing your team or your organization or your department. We don't often think of them as influencing upward or laterally. In other words, trying to change the mind of someone that you don't actually have formal authority over. And this is something that we all struggle with every day. And I realized there wasn't much research about this. So I kind of had to go into a lot of different literatures to find stuff that I could put together into this book. And this is what I've been teaching for a while, actually. Um, and it's something I care a lot about. I'm, I'm especially interested in helping people get their voice heard, people who are maybe on the fringes, people who aren't heard um, as much. But I also, I want you to think about the last time you were trying to change someone's mind about something or you know, influence someone in some way. Was that person someone who reported to you? Or was it a client, a colleague, maybe someone like board of directors? You know, was it someone who was more lateral or up the hierarchy compared to you? So um, for how many of you, think, thinking of this last time you're trying to influence someone, for how many of you was it downward influence, someone that reported to you? Raise your hand. Okay, only a few of you. For how many of you was it lateral, like a colleague or a client or someone like that? Raise your hand. And for how many of you was it upward, someone who had more power than you? Okay, great. So I'm, I'm seeing quite an even split here. The, the fewest hands went up for the first one. Um, and most people, it was kind of 50-50, lateral and upward. So that's what this is most mostly focused on, is the lateral and the upward. So when I think about influence, I like to think of it in terms of these three um, layers. And so I've got the inner self, the face you show the world, and the social context. And by the way, my book is also organized in these three layers, because I think this is really important. We start with the inner self. So the inner self is, I think of it as a muscle. It's something that if you're building your muscles, it takes time. You have to go to the gym for a long time, over years and years and years, and that's how you build your muscle. Well, the inner self takes time. It's things like confidence, reputation, that voice in your head that undermines you, you know, all of that. So you have to start with the inner self and keep working on it day after day. 
you strengthen those muscles, and then you can use the face you show the world. The face you show the world are the tools, the tools that you can just pick up and use. Um, that tell you how to frame your message or deliver your message. Most books on influence focus on that second layer. Most of them focus on the tools that you can use. They don't often focus on that muscle, you know, how do you develop the muscle? And they almost never focus on the third layer, which is the social context. And this, I think, is a really critical part. So I'm going to spend a little bit of time on each of these layers. So with the inner self, it's a reputation, as I said. Um, but when we think of this reputation, the, the kind of theory that, that this fits into is called the basis of power. And I, I really think this is a very, it's a very simple concept, but a very powerful one. So there are five bases of power. There are three that, there are three that um, come with having a formal position of authority. So if you're the boss, the, whoever you're trying to influence is obligated to listen to you. You can see the language we use here, target and agent. So you are the agent. You're trying to influence someone. The target is the person you're trying to influence. So legitimate power is they kind of have to listen to you. Um, they're obligated to. Reward and coercive is you have access to rewards and punishments. Okay. So not that useful if you're not in a position of authority over this person. Instead, these are the two bases of power that are the most useful. So think of this as, when we talk about this in psychology, we talk about it as a one-on-one. -on -one. So you're influencing a person. Because if you're trying to influence a crowd, that's, that's a whole different kind of uh, strategy. But if you're influencing an individual, so the first thing you think about is how much respect does this person have for me? That's your expert power. The second one is, how much of a connection do I have with this person? And that's referent power. Now, these two are not the same thing. If you have both, it's very powerful. So what you're aiming for is to have both. So the expert power, if you want to build expert power with someone, if you help them solve a problem that they are struggling with, that builds expert power. Um, I mean, expert power is also like having all the degrees and the... You know, when, when I was introduced and Daniel was saying that I had an a, um, undergrad from Harvard and a PhD from Berkeley or Berkeley, um, you know, that, that kind of, that builds the expert power as well. But that also can come across as a bit show-offy and it's like, yeah, so what? Big deal. Lots of other people graduated from those schools too. Um, to really build that expert power, it's helping someone solve a problem that they're struggling with will help them feel that you actually not only care, but that you're pretty smart. Referent power is not the same as liking. So it's not necessary. I mean, liking is part of referent power, but referent power is this person wants to maintain a good relationship with you. They like working with you. And so they're more likely to listen to you. Um, and that's really connecting with people on a human level. That's getting to know them. Now, part of referent power is something called trust. And I like this definition of trust. There are many definitions of trust. Trust is a very vague and you know, soft subject. But this definition of trust is quite useful because by breaking it down into five elements, I think we can think about how to actually build trust. So you don't need to have all five elements in every relationship. But you can think about this person that you're trying to influence. 
how much, you know, how would they answer these questions? Do they think that I can do the job well? Do they think I delivered? Do, I, do they think I'm transparent and honest? Do they think I care? You know, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a nice way to kind of break that down and do a little bit of analysis. Now, if you're dealing with, say, a new client or something like that, and you want to build trust quickly, the first two items are quite useful because you can think about it this way. If I say to this client, I will, I will deliver something in three months, okay, no trust is being built during those three months. They're waiting. If I say, I'll deliver something in three months, and every, every week or every two weeks, I will give you a little update. Okay? Every time you give an update, you're hitting the first two bullet points. You're showing that you can do the job. You're showing that you will deliver what you promise. And so by the time you get to the three months, you've built a certain level of trust. Now, in addition to that, there's, you know, <laughs> don't, don't, overthink this. So being transparent and honest doesn't mean telling them everything, but it's, it's behaving in a way that they feel they can trust you. So one of my students recently said to me, what do you think of Machiavelli? And I was like, so recently I actually found in my library a book. So my dad, um, my dad passed away a few years ago. He was like 95, so he, he was born in the 1920s. And um, I found the prince in my library. It belonged to my dad. It was from the 1940s, published in the 1940s. And he had written a, a message to himself on the front page. He said, study this. And I was like, oh, OK. Um, but the thing is, <laughs> my dad was a lovely person. He, he always felt he never made enough money. You know, typical Chinese dad. He was always saying, I don't have enough money, I don't have enough money. But he had a huge amount of referent power and expert power. So the people that he worked with um, trusted him, they felt he was honest, they felt he was reliable, and I think that is worth a lot. We have to stop focusing on you know, the wrong things. That was worth a lot, and that was why he was actually able to find projects to work on until he was about 90. He had no hobbies. He never wanted to retire. So he found people who would give him projects and work with him until he was about 90, at which point he was forced to retire. And he was like, oh, why won't anyone hire me? Um, anyway, so it, you know, being, being perceived as honest and not manipulative is important. Care, this is, are you helping them with their problems? Are you listening to them? That's, that's care. And intimacy, okay, intimacy is going to sound a little bit strange in a professional context. And remember I said you don't need all five, so you don't need intimacy with everyone. But I'll give you an example of intimacy. So um, several years ago when my dad passed away, I, I had to cancel one of my undergrad lectures to fly back to the States for the funeral. And usually when this happens, the program team will send out a message saying, Dr. Locke had a family emergency and the lecture is canceled. But I thought, well, you know, why not just send a message that is more open and transparent and intimate, basically explaining what happened? Because I used to be one of those students where if I heard family emergency, I'd be like, what? What was it? Come on, why won't anyone tell me? So, so I said, you know, my, my elderly father passed away, he had cancer, and I need to go back for the funeral, um, and that's why we have to cancel the, the lecture. So what ended up happening, I mean, these are first-year undergrads, so 18, 19 years old. I got about 
10 or 20, yeah, 10 to 15 condolence emails, which was really sweet. I mean, these are young kids. And, and then when I came back to London, one of the students came to my office hours and loaned me his comic book, which was all about grief and bereavement. And that helped us build, I mean, it was actually a pretty good comic book. Um, <laughs> I tried not to laugh when he showed it to me. I was like, a comic book, okay. Um, but it was actually pretty good. So that helped us build this relationship. So by me being kind of opening up, it helped us build this, this long-term relationship with this student who I still keep in touch with. Um, now, one of my students said to me, but if I open up to my boss, he's going to use it against me. And I was like, well, then don't. I'm not telling you you have to. You know, use your judgment here. But so I think thinking about trust as these five things can be quite helpful. So then... Why would anyone listen to you? Well, people will listen if they respect you, which is expert power, they connect with you, which is referent power, and they trust you. Now, one thing I want to point out here, I, I didn't say if they are friends with you. Okay, this is, we're talking about influence in a professional context. This is different from friendship. You know, someone who connects with you, just because you connect with them doesn't mean you necessarily like them so much you want to go out drinking and partying with them. That's a whole different thing. Okay, connecting with someone doesn't have to be on the friendship level. I, I, for a long time, I actually found that the people I really liked working with were not the people that I necessarily wanted to go out drinking with. Because the people I liked working with, they were dependable, they were smart, they were efficient, and a little bit boring. The people I liked drinking with, they were not dependable, not always that smart, but they were fun. And so, you know, this is not the same thing. You're not trying to be friends, necessarily. Okay, so that's, that's the inner self. Now, let me cover some of the tools, the face you show the world. So the face you show the world is two things. It's the content of your message and the delivery of your message. So the content of your message has to be tuned into a certain radio station. It's called WIIFM, which is... What's in it for me? So this is what your audience has on their mind. What is in it for me? And so you have to frame your content in the right way, which means you actually have to spend a lot of time getting to know the person. So there's, there's a phrase, um, seek first to understand before being understood. And I think that is a really good rule of thumb for life in general. Seek first to understand before being understood. Because we often, when we're trying to convince someone of something, we're, we're thinking, okay, are my arguments good enough? Are, do I have the evidence? Do I have the data? You're not thinking, wait, where is this person right now? What are they concerned about? What are they worried about? What's top of mind for them? And that's what, that's what I'm reminding you to do here, is you start with that first. Seek first to understand before presenting your arguments. But so then, once you're ready to present your arguments, delivery is a lot to do with nonverbal behavior. So just a reminder here about the, uh, the channels of communication. There are four channels of communication. There's only one verbal channel, which is, it's called linguistic. So essentially, in my presentation, if you were to read the transcript, that's the linguistic channel. And then there are three nonverbal channels. 
So kinesthetic has to do with touch and proximity. So um, if we were to shake hands or how close I am to you, you know, that, that communicates something. Visual is everything you can see. So the visual channel is extremely rich. You can see um, my sex, my race, my height, you know, all of these things, what I'm wearing, etc. My facial expressions, body language. So body language falls under that visual umbrella. It's, it's very limiting if we only think about body language because there's a lot more to it than that. But this channel of communication is the one that I think we neglect the most and is one of the most powerful. And that's the paralinguistic. So the paralinguistic is what you hear. Visual is what you see. Paralinguistic is what you hear. Everything you hear, except for the words, because the words are the transcript. So what do you hear in my voice that's not the words? Well, you hear my accent, my tone, my speed, volume. If I say, um, uh, which I try very hard not to, but you know, all of those things, uh, sighing, laughing, all of these things, paralinguistic is extremely powerful and a really great channel of communication for engaging people. So I would challenge you, the next time you're preparing for your next presentation, take your phone and just record the first two, three minutes of your presentation, play it back, and see, are you monotone? Are you using, you know, are you engaging? Are you, is your voice, is your pitch going up and down? When I used to do presentation skills training for the consultants at BCG, one of the things I noticed is they'd give a presentation, so I'd, I'd videotape them. They'd give like a five-minute presentation, and then we'd do a little Q&A. And what I noticed was their tone and mannerisms during the Q&A were much more engaging than during the five-minute presentation. And so my advice was always take that, that Q&A voice and mannerisms and move it into the presentation. Because the presentation should not be a robot communicating. You know, you could just get an AI to deliver it then. The, the presentation should be more like a conversation, like the Q&A part of it. But so, the, the reason I think this is useful, first of all, is to um, encourage you to pay more attention to the paralinguistic, but also to think more strategically about how you communicate. So when you send an email, how many channels of communication are you using? One, yeah. When you talk on the phone, how many channels of communication? Two, because you've got the linguistic and the paralinguistic. Zoom call would be three, and then in-person would be four. So the fewer channels of communication you use, the more likely miscommunication can happen, especially if it's cross-cultural. If you're communicating in English and the other person doesn't have English as their first language, maybe they misunderstand your tone. Um, even if both people have English as their first language, maybe you misunderstand their tone. If one of them is British and one of them is American. Um, so this is the thing to keep in mind, is Think strategically. When you're writing an email or a text, you're only using one out of four channels of communication. It might be better if you pick up the phone. If there's, if there's anything negative in the message, if there's a criticism, you know, that sort of stuff, I think it, it could be useful to instead pick up the phone, or nowadays, you know, Zoom calls are so, so easy. But so, okay, 
To be more influential, what are the specific nonverbal things that you need to do? This list should not be surprising to you. I call this a confident demeanor because what it does is it makes you appear more confident. This is basically what we teach in presentation skills training. But what was interesting to me when I went to do the PhD, because I wanted to find out how much of what I had been teaching was actually real, like supported by research, it's very little. Look at how short this list is. There's six items on this list, hardly anything that you need to remember. Whereas if you read a book on body language, um, it'll give you, I don't know, 15, 20, 30 things to pay attention to. So it's about eye contact while speaking, because eye contact while listening conveys warmth. Speaking conveys confidence. Speaking audibly with a confident tone, speaking fluidly, meaning not using the filler words. Pauses are very important. If you happen to use filler words, I used to use like, like, you know, a lot. Replace it with a bit of silence. It's actually better than distracting people with filler words. I have a colleague who says, um, he doesn't say um, he says, um, um, and I'm like, oh, ow, ow. It's distracting. Just replace it with a bit of silence. Using confident gestures, no fidgeting, standing up straight, taking up space, meaning, you know, don't shrink yourself. Okay, let me just quickly look at the time. Okay, I want to get to the last section and have time for questions. So if you use this, what I call a confident demeanor, you will have all of these wonderful, you know, you will be judged to be all of these wonderful things. This, this is actually the key to being perceived as charismatic or leader-like or inspirational. It's, and they've done a whole bunch of studies. I mean, the studies are fairly old, but they've done recent studies as well that confirm the same thing. You deliver the same message, but with the different nonverbal style, a different delivery, it comes across completely differently. Okay, so people will listen to you if you tune into their concerns, that's the content of your message, and you deliver your message confidently, however, so this, I think, is the most interesting part, is the context. Okay, so I'm gonna talk about two, two situations in which you need to adjust that confident demeanor. One, if you're a woman, and number two, if you're dealing with a cross-cultural cross interaction with a culture or a person that is high in power distance. Okay, so, those of you um, who heard me in 2020 will remember this bit, hopefully. Uh, there is a gender stereotype that runs through all cultures, because all cultures in the world are patriarchal. Um, there was one, there was a study that was looking for a mat matriarchal society and they couldn't find one. They did find a matrilineal society, but that's not quite the same thing. That just means they're handing down the assets through the woman. So. Um, in patriarchal societies, we have this gender stereotype where men are agentic and women are communal. Now, the problem with this stereotype is it's prescriptive. Unlike other stereotypes that are just oversimplifying the world, this is actually saying men should be agentic and women should be communal. And that's where the problem lies. Because if you behave counter-stereotypically, so if you have men who are very communal 
or women who are very agentic, you get something called backlash. And backlash is simply you're, you're not liked. Now, that might seem like, well, what's the big deal if I'm not liked? But remember what I said about expert power and referent power. So what that means, backlash means you have expert power, <clears throat> but no referent power. Actually, the opposite of referent power, because people dislike you. Now, for men who are very communal, if they're leaders, the solution is to be agentic. And if you're a man, you're supposed to be agentic. If you're a leader, you're supposed to be agentic. It's all consistent. For a woman, if she's a leader, she needs to be agentic because the core of leadership is agency. If you had a leader who was weak and indecisive, you wouldn't necessarily call them a leader. Um, so if you have a woman who is a leader, she needs to be agentic, but wait a minute, she's a woman. She's supposed to be communal. And so there's this double bind where if she's very agentic, what happens is people think that she's effective, but not likable. If she's very communal, they think, oh, she's likable, but not very effective. And so it, it becomes this double bind. And the solution here is to kind of combine both. So basically, a woman using a confident demeanor has to also demonstrate some element of warmth. Now, I'm going to say that this is, this is something that everybody should do. Because actually, these ideas of agentic and communal, I don't think we should throw them out. I just don't think they should be gendered. I think leadership is a combination of agentic and communal. A leader who is only agentic is essentially a bit of an asshole. And someone that you're probably scared of and don't want to talk to, and who ends up actually probably making mistakes because everyone's too scared to tell them that they're wrong. A leader who is too communal, uh, you know, they're kind of all over the place. I, I, I worked for this one woman once where she called a meeting for everything. And at, finally, at one point, we were like, you know, you could just make that decision yourself. You really don't need to call a meeting for this. She was like, oh, oh, but I just wanted to make sure you felt included. We were like, no. Um, so I often talk about leadership as being ambidextrous. You know, some people are left-handed, some people are right-handed. If you're ambidextrous, you can write with both hands. So some people have a tendency to be very agentic. Some people have a tendency to be very communal. To be a good leader, you need to be able to do both. Not always at the same time. You know, switching back and forth, there are some times where you need to make a decision by yourself and just tell the team, this is the decision I made. There are some times where you need to call a meeting and get consensus. And knowing the difference, understanding that difference in that situation is the core of leadership. And, you know, if you've ever tried to write with your non-dominant hand, you know how hard it is to be ambidextrous. And this is why leadership is so hard because it's understanding the situation and being able to switch back and forth. But there is another situation in which that confident demeanor might not work, and that is if you're dealing with someone who is high in power distance. So power distance, and I've given you a link here if you want to look up your own country, because I wasn't able to put all the countries on here. Um, this is just a, 
a sample. I've given you the extremes. Israel, on according to Hofstede scale, and there there are other measures of power distance. So Hofstede is not the you know end all and be all of these measurements. Um, Israel is the lowest in power distance, and Malaysia is the highest. And power distance is what it sounds like. It's the distance between people who have different power. So I often think of it as high power distance is the boss is up here and the subordinate is here, you know, the, the um, person that reports to them, their direct report. Low power distance, the boss is here and the direct report is here. So it's how much distance there is between the two. And so you'll find in, on the more egalitarian side, and by the way, I'm not saying that any of these cultures are actually egalitarian. This is about values. They value egalitarianism. Um, and so you have different expectations about the boss being participative, the subordinate being proactive, status is based on achievements. At the more hierarchical end, you expect the boss to be in control, the subordinate to be respectful, and status is based on things that you can't necessarily control. So the, the reason I bring this up is because if you're dealing with someone who is high in power distance, don't use that confident demeanor. You know, you have to, if you look too agentic and confident and sure, they might actually find it a bit offensive, you know, a bit rude, a bit disrespectful. Because remember what we're talking about here, we're talking about lateral and upward influence. We're not talking about downward influence. So especially if it's upward influence. Now, but I'm not saying that it's not possible to influence someone who's high in power distance. So I have a student who's from Nigeria, and Nigeria is very high in power distance. She's a woman, her boss is a man, and so you know there's a huge gap in power between them. But she said to me, it's fine. I, I make him do what I want. He just doesn't know it. She said, he's the head, I'm the neck and I tell him which way to turn. But obviously, the way in which she does it has to be much less direct. You know, you're not using that direct eye contact that I told you about earlier. You're probably using, you know, some indirect language, softer body language, etc. So, I point this out because I think this is really important. We all work internationally, and I know a lot of you have flown in from other countries and in the English-speaking world, especially, unfortunately, in the United States, the United States is so large that when you grow up there, you feel like the rest of the world doesn't exist, which is why in baseball it's called the World Series, even though the world is not involved. And so we often forget that you know, people behave very differently in other parts of the world. However, However, so you might, if you go to this website and look up countries, I want you to also remember what I'm showing you here, which is if you find, and I believe this is based on Hofstede's data, that Japan is higher in power distance than the US, what you're actually seeing is the average. There is a bell curve. So the way we do this cultural um, research is we survey as many people as we possibly can, we're never surveying the whole country. That would be impossible. So we're surveying hundreds or thousands of people and taking the average. So you will have Japanese who are let lower in power distance than the average American, and you will have Americans who are higher in power distance than the average Japanese. 
I remember one of my students actually telling me about um, her boss in China. She was like, wait, Americans are low in power distance? But my boss in China, like he's, he really is, like, he wants respect and he gets offended really easily if we don't show him respect. And I was thinking, you know, there's probably some self-selection here. He probably felt he wasn't getting enough respect in the United States, so he moved to China, which is a very high power distance culture, and therefore he would naturally get more respect. Okay, so let me just finish with one last tip for you, which is in all communication, your goal should be to balance what we call inquiry and advocacy. There, there's something called the Johari window, which we used to use when I was a training manager. And you had to answer a whole bunch of questions about how you communicated with your boss, with your colleagues, and with your subordinates, with your direct reports. And then they would give you a little window. And what they often found was with your boss, you would ask a lot of questions, so a lot of inquiry, but not much advocacy. You're not, you're not stating your views much. With your um, direct reports, you're stating a lot of stuff, you're advocating a lot, but you're not asking a lot of questions. And with your peers, it's fairly equal. So what you're aiming for is to be equal at all times. And especially this idea of what is the thinking behind that perspective? Because, you know, why would anyone listen to you? Well, because you're listening to them. You're listening to them first, and they will then be more likely to listen to you. But let me, let me demonstrate this um, illustrate this um, inquiry versus advocacy, the importance of this, with a little story, which um, I can't remember what book I read this in, but I love this story. So this is a true story of, about Mr. Smith and his family doctor. So Mr. Smith called up his family doctor one night, late at night, and he said, doctor, doctor, my wife has appendicitis, can you meet us at the hospital? And the doctor said, no, she doesn't. But, doctor, yeah, I, I know what appendicitis looks like. Can, can you meet us at the hospital? This is an emergency. No, she doesn't. Doctor, what? I'm not joking around here. Seriously, can you meet us at the hospital? She has appendicitis. I'm pretty sure she doesn't. So finally, Mr. Smith thought to ask, what is the thinking behind your perspective? And he said, why do you think she doesn't have appendicitis? Well, Mr. Smith, because I took your wife's appendix out seven years ago, and no woman has two appendices. <laughs> and Mr. Smith replied, yes, doctor, but some men have two wives. <laughs> I love that story. Okay, I, I'm going to assume that he divorced the first one before marrying the second one. Anyway, so... People will listen to you if you convey warmth with confidence, so that's the communal and agentic combined, and if you show them respect, especially if they are high in power distance, and if you balance inquiry and advocacy. So if you want to know more, obviously I've got my book, you can connect with me on LinkedIn. I've also got my website. There are a lot of resources, free resources on the website that you can connect with. Um, by the way, my publisher told me that um, you can't find my book in, in bookshops, book because that's not the way uh, publishing works, apparently. My book was published in 2021. It is now 2023. It is no longer held in the stores. Um, so I've given you a few links if you're interested. Um, Hive, you can actually buy it online and pick it up at a bookstore. <laughs> I mean, that's the way things work these days. 
Um, okay, so I've left a bit of time for questions. Thank you, Conson. That was uh, that was really interesting, and I think. Uh, uh, given the way that markets were last year, lots of us will be having some difficult conversations this year. And so to have some advice on how to deal with it is Yes, Thank yes. You. And those difficult conversations, you know, start with the questions. Start with getting to know them and understanding them first. Um, so do you see the theory of leadership ever being added to school curriculum? So do you mean school as in um, below university, kind of? So... I don't think it will be, but one of the things I found in teaching this stuff is if you have no work experience, it's really hard to understand it. You know, I have undergrads saying to me, this was when I first started teaching, and I, um, I've gotten better now, but in the beginning, one of my undergrads at the end of my course, okay, this is after a 10-week term, he was like, I still don't understand the relevance of psychology to management. And I was like, what, what, how do you not, you're managing people, people, psychology is about people. Um, and so I really, I would say no, not just because the school curriculum is so stuck and difficult to change, but also because I think when you're too young and you haven't worked, it, it, it's actually really hard to grasp. Uh, thank oh. you. I have the answer. Oh, another one here. Yes. Sorry, was, was there? <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, your voice is coming from it, behind yeah. me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. You know, Surprise. seriously. <laughs> Middle age. This is, I feel like I'm, I'm kind of, my teenagers keep reminding me that I'm just not with it these days. Um, with hierarchy, power, <laughs> influence, and empathy involved, what advice would you give Harry and Megan? <laughs> <laughs> so first of all, I would say, Harry, go see a therapist. <laughs> because he obviously has so much bitterness. Mm. He hasn't gotten over the death of his mother. And he has so much bitterness. And writing a book and doing videos is not the way you overcome that bitterness. Um, and really, oh, man. <laughs> See, I really think, so if you remember the three layers, there's the inner self, we always neglect that. And when you see people like Harry, and I mean, Megan, I don't know, I, I can't say much about Megan. I think she was, she was not treated fairly, I think, by a lot of the media, but I mean, who is? Um, but I think a I can see real psychological issues with Harry. And he hasn't dealt with that inner self. And I think this is where I'm coming to. At my age, I'm thinking we all need to work on our inner selves because some of my colleagues, they feel like, it feels like I'm dealing with a 13-year-old in a 50-year-old's body. I'm like, okay, you really haven't dealt with that inner self yet, have you? Um, and that's the advice I would give. How does the investment industry attract more women, especially in leadership roles? So I think a lot of this, I mean, this is like the STEM subjects. How do you attract women? Well, it has to start very early. And it has to be, we need better math teachers. We need people who can make these subjects fun. 
Um, my daughter, I have two daughters. One of them went to an all-girls school and one of them went to a co-ed school um, in secondary school. The one who went to a girls school has, she's decided for A-levels to study maths, physics, and computer science. And I think that's down to not only the teachers, but the fact that you didn't have a lot of boys in the class, you know, making you feel like you were stupid. Um, whereas my other daughter, I mean, she's a different person anyway, but she hated those subjects, and she always felt like she was bad at them. So I think, I think it, it's really starting early um, and getting, getting kids interested in these things and building that pipeline. What are the key common mistakes leaders make when taking over a senior management position within a firm that they have not worked in before? <laughs> One of the biggest ones, so this is, I, I was recently talking to my students about a culture change at IBM, which uh, there's a book, if you're interested, my dad used to work for IBM, which is why I got the book. It's called um, Who Says Elephants Can't Dance? And it was by Lou Gerstner Jr. who turned IBM around. Um, one of the biggest mistakes is when you come in at that senior level, you fire the whole leadership team. Because you're like, well, I want to bring in my own team who understand the way I work and my culture. But think about what I just said about expert and referent power. Expert and referent power is something you build over time. And so by firing that whole leadership team, you've not only lost all of the expertise and knowledge, you've actually lost all of that expert and referent power. Because if you kept those people, you know, if, say, on your team, whatever, this, this person who was there before buys into what you're trying to do, then the people who respect that person, they, they might be like, oh, Bill actually is going along with this. Maybe we should, too. Whereas if you get rid of all those people and you bring in all new people, then everyone goes, yeah, well, why do we even need to pay attention? And I think that's one of the biggest mistakes. Um, and the other one is not taking the time to build the expert and referent power, trying to make those changes too quickly, too soon. How would you explain the difference between management and leadership? Ah, well, I do this all the time. And what I say is that it is not two different people, it is two different sets of skills. So the same person, remember I said leadership should be ambidextrous? Some of us have a tendency to engage in leadership skills, which is like that vision, big picture, idea person. Some of us have a tendency to enjoy the more managerial side of things, which is the organizing, the budgeting, the making sure, you know, like when I organized my wedding and created an Excel spreadsheet with a timeline and tasks, and my fiance ignored the whole thing. <laughs> but so, you know, we have a tendency to be one or the other, left-handed or right-handed. You need to be ambidextrous. In your job, actually, you should think about this. In your job, are you engaging in the management skills at the right times? And are you engaging in the leadership skills at the right times? What are the three key takeaways you would give to senior leaders at New Capital? We should explain New Capital is our fund management uh, business. Okay. Um, <clears throat> three key takeaways. I think number one, ask the right questions. It's difficult to know what the right questions are. 
And if you ask the right questions and take the time to listen, you will learn an amazing amount about the other person and what they're going through and maybe how you should be framing your arguments. Um, number two, really think about your bases of power. Have you built those bases of power, both the expert and referent power? And number three, get some 360 feedback because we don't know ourselves as well as we think we do. Is agentic and communal similar to Maslow's hierarchy of needs? Mm, not really. Um, Maslow's hierarchy of needs is, is more about what motivates us. And so we're motivated to um, fulfill our social needs or our safety needs or whatever it is. Whereas agentic and communal is more about the, the, the way we interact with the world where agentic is more you're telling people what to do and communal is more you're listening and trying to understand them. So Elon Musk is making big mistakes at Twitter by firing, oh yeah. <laughs> I mean, you probably could have said yes to that without me being here, <laughs> firing 75% of the workforce. How is that ever a good thing? Seriously, you might as well just start a new company. So, we're nearly there in terms of the uh, <laughs> Anything else? questions, but let's just open it to the floor. Are there any questions anybody would like to ask directly? I think Michael had his hand up first. We'll come to you in a second, Bonnie. Maybe, can you hear me? Yeah. Maybe you kind of already answered this, but when you think about age and how you adjust with age, and I'm thinking specifically about my children here, are there any tips you could give for like how you might uh, not, not managing the children but, um, but generally influencing people of different ages I mean you, you mentioned obviously the hierarchy and stuff mm. I wondered if there's any, any way you could expand on that a little bit maybe with a little um, bit of a hint on children how old are your kids seven and five seven and five yeah so what I learned with my kids, so mine are now 16 and 18, um, you have to meet them where they are. And so this is about building referent and expert power. And with children, it's a lifetime. So basically over time, what I've, I've taken the time to watch the shows that they like to watch, play the toys, you know, play the games that they like to play, listen to them. Um, we used to go out shopping. My girls like to drink bubble tea. Um, and so we would go out to the bubble tea place and the, the, the journey on the tube would, during that time, they would tell me about school and, you know, it's the time spent. And now they're 16 and 18 and they, I feel we have a good relationship. They open up to me. If I hadn't spent the time back when they were five and seven and 10 and 11, I wouldn't have this relationship with them now. And I think this is true. You can, you can generalize this to just about every human relationship. If you haven't spent the time to get to know the other person, why should they listen to you? 
Why should they think that you care about them just because you say, oh yeah, I really care. It's like, yeah, <laughs> do you? You couldn't bother to spend time with me, you know, last year when I asked, blah, blah, blah. So um, I think that's, that's the key. It's time. And I know we have very little time, but it doesn't take a lot of time. So for me, um, it would just be on the weekends. I would take them for a bubble tea or, you know, whatever it is that they wanted to do. And so it's just a couple hours on the weekends, and that helped build the relationship over time. Okay, and sometimes in the evenings. I had one daughter who was really anxious, and every night I would come home and she'd be like, Mommy, can I talk to you? I'd be like, yes, yes, fine. Okay, <laughs> let's talk. Great. I think Bonnie had a question. So. Um, on the agentic and communal, obviously it's male and female. How does that work for homosexual, a gay man uh, or lesbian? Yeah. Who, who kind of that apply or the same kind of expectation on a gay man as in mm -hmm. for a straight man? How, do, how does that work? So what I would say is I want us to get away from gendering these things. So I, I would like to think of agentic and communal as something that everybody can do. Um, the expectations, so the expectations that society has for us and that we then take in and think we should be that way, I think are very limiting. And in fact, one thing I've noticed is sometimes when I see very powerful women and half the time I find out that they're lesbians, and I'm thinking part of it might be because they refuse to, they refuse to adhere to that societal expectation that women are supposed to be nice and warm and sweet and friendly. And they refuse to adhere to that. And so, um, and also in the sense that, you know, with, I have a lot of friends who are gay men and I feel more comfortable with them sometimes than with, um, with hetero men because oftentimes they're more communal because they refuse to adhere. And so I think the lesson for that is not what should people be, but more let's refuse to adhere to these expectations that society puts on us because they are limiting. They are very limiting to everybody. Um, and it's one of the things that I hope I communicate to my daughter because in my household, we have switched roles. So I'm the full-time breadwinner. My husband is the full-time parent raising the girls. Um, and so I'm hoping that my daughters grow up with this idea that you don't have to do what society wants you to do. Actually, one of them came home. So I'm, I'm seven years older than my husband. And one of them came home one day. Uh, she was like maybe 11 or 12. And she's like, Mommy, you know, I found out that um, you're a lot older than, than my friend's parents. And you're older than daddy? And I was like, yeah, so? It's, it's nice to be different, it's nice to be unique. And she's like, oh yeah, okay. <laughs> but so, you know, let's break these stereotypes. Let's, let's, let's get away from it. I think the idea of agentic and communal as things that we should balance, that we should do as leaders, makes sense, but not that they should be gendered. With that, please join me in thanking Thompson very much.
Well, we hope you enjoyed that. I certainly enjoyed that. And I know that many of people in, in the audience enjoyed that presentation too. So uh, if you um, have uh, any questions, please feel free to reach out. And of course, if you want access to the uh, recordings of our Investment Summit 2023, uh, please do let us know. Uh, in the meantime, enjoy your week ahead and we'll speak to you again next week. Bye.